Good afternoon. Um, like Ben said, we'll be in Luke 6 in verse 35. Um, so please direct your attention there as I read. God's word says this, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. The 2015 Disney Pixar film, The Good Dinosaur, tells the story of a young, timid dinosaur named Arlo who is determined to make his mark by finishing a difficult task that benefits his family's corn farm. This desire leads him to chase down a wild human boy who has been stealing from the farm's food storage. And during this chase, a flash flood breaks out, nearly taking out Arlo before he is thrust out of the way by his father, who is killed in the flood in his place. Arlo and the boy, who he later names Spot, eventually become stranded in the wilderness with no idea of how to return home. Arlo attributes the death of his father to the boy, but Spot tries to make reconciliation by helping the young dinosaur as he struggles to survive. This eventually forms an unexpected bond between the two, and as the story goes on, their friendship deepens as they work together to help others, ultimately leading him to put his own life in danger for the sake of saving his new friend. But what really makes Arlo the good dinosaur in this movie? Is it because he forms many friendships and helps other dinosaurs during his journey? Is it his readiness to risk his own life for the boy who has been helping him survive, even though he led to the loss of his father? Maybe. It could be. But Jesus offers a different perspective of what goodness is as he teaches his disciples in Luke 6. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. We see here that goodness is not just the loose allocation of good deeds to others in hopes of reciprocation. And it's not just the care given and sacrifices made to someone you love. But goodness is costly, it's unrecognized, and it can only be carried out with a mind focused on the eternal. So the main point I hope we take it takeaway from tonight's passage is this. Godly goodness requires the exchange of earthly expectations for eternal ones. Godly goodness requires the exchange of earthly expectations for eternal ones. Jesus' commands to his disciples present three ingredients of godly goodness. Goodness is made up of an earthly expense, a heavenly expectation, and a perfect example. Goodness is made up of an earthly expense, a heavenly expectation, and a perfect example. So the first ingredient of godly goodness is an earthly expense. Three things are commanded here in Luke 6.35. To love your enemies, to do good, and to lend. And you do each of these while expecting nothing in return. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Plain, begins to usher in this upside-down kingdom where the poor, weak, and afflicted are the ones who are exalted, and the prosperous and flourishing are to be woed. So no longer is evil to be repaid tooth for tooth or is good to be done with an expectation of a return gesture, but instead we are to show mercy and love purely in response to how we have first been shown mercy and love by God. We, though, constantly look at ourselves as we consider interactions with others. We treat our relationships and chances to serve as investment opportunities. We pick and choose where we place our time and effort based on what will give us the greatest potential return. The golden rule has developed into a conditional statement. Help and do good to others if they will be able to help you when you're in a time of need. 
Even when there is no immediate benefit to our actions, there is a perpetual expectation that good must be returned for good in the long run. But the call to goodness that we see here is one that constitutes action with no hope of a return. And we see this first demonstrated in the command to love your enemies. So naturally, when an enemy attacks, we see there are three, well, there are three ways to respond. You can either fight back, you can defend yourself, or you retreat. So let's take some time to consider each of these responses. So in what ways do you fight back against your enemy? Maybe your natural response is to literally return blow for blow and insult for insult. Or instead, fighting back may look like uh, passive aggression. But we're called instead to turn the other cheek when we are struck by our enemy. Now this doesn't necessarily mean for us to put ourselves in harm's way. But rather, it's a call to unconditional generosity. We give, and we give, and then we give more. Because, uh, our, and we should be indifferent to whatever response that produces. The reality is, as those in Christ, we will be taken advantage of. We will be reviled, and we will have our name spurned as evil in this world. Yet God has extended his hands all day long to us in our rebellion. Or, sorry, yes, as God has extended his hand all day long to us in our rebellion, we should continually offer the or offer love to the one who has wronged you. Uh, Let me ask you, are the sins of that person against you so great that you would withhold the forgiving love of Christ from them? Next, in what ways are you acting in self-defense when the enemy attacks? Are you focusing so much of your effort on protecting your own self-image that you forsake your witness to those around you? Don't respond to the acts of the enemy in a desperate attempt to protect your own name or your words and your actions, but instead let your response display to others the hope that is in you and be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for that hope. There is no better way to love your enemy than to point them toward the even greater love displayed by God through the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross. So don't respond to the slander of another by looking to defend yourself. Instead, lay down your weapons and approach those attacks with the hand of the gospel outstretched in love. Third, in what ways do you retreat? Is your first reaction to the attack of an enemy to run and hide, completely withdrawing from any future, re- future interaction from them? Is it to hold a grudge and hope your enemy is increasingly hurt by the guilt of their actions against you? Don't allow your mind to retreat by trying to ignore the words and actions of your enemy, but allow your mind to approach the situation in prayer. Pray for the one who hurts you and takes advantage of you. Pray for their salvation and pray that you would have wisdom and opportunities to show love to them. Pray even for your own heart as you seek to forgive them, whether or not they seek out your forgiveness. So many times we feel like that person has to first pay back a certain amount of what they owe us before we can wholly forgive them. But Paul writes in Romans 12, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Forgiveness will require you to completely absorb the debt owed by your enemy before any justice is given. The only true portion of justice that can be served is by loving the one who has wronged you. Our desire should be that the evil of our enemy would be overcome by our own good and that this heaping of a burning shame and guilt upon our enemy would lead them to a true repentance and faith in Christ. 
Next, Jesus commands us to do good while expecting nothing in return. Good is done by stewarding the gifts given to us by God to serve those around us. We are created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of doing good, and our good works are prepared for us by God, and we are given unique giftings of the Holy Spirit in order that God would be glorified through us in Jesus. 1 Peter 4 commands us to use these gifts to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So consider how God has blessed you in the Spirit, whether it's the ability to gently speak truth into the lives of others, the ability to welcome others into your home, or maybe it's the, patient to, the patience to be present with a brother or sister who is in need. If you don't feel like you know how you have been gifted to serve the body, go to someone who knows you well and ask them how they have seen you encouraging and building up the people around you. We aren't given these gifts so that we could boast about our own abilities, but we are given them so that through our actions, we would bring glory to God who provides us even the means by which we can do good. Lastly, Jesus commands us to lend to others while expecting nothing back from them. By definition, to lend is to give to someone a service or the use of resources under the understanding that it would be returned. We see here in Luke 6, though, that godly goodness is displayed in giving away those services or resources with no expectation of any sort of return payment. In most cases, when there is an expectation of return, the decision to lend to another is a quick and easy one. But that decision to lend is made with a little bit more of a hesitation when there's no guarantee of a return. To lend like this requires an intentional decision to give up your possessions. Lending should be costly. It is a sacrifice, but it is one that is pleasing to God. Lending to others doesn't just refer to physical possessions, though. Families, lend out your homes to others. Invite others into the busyness and chaos of your life so that they would see how godly homes and marriages are upheld. I personally have been extremely blessed um, and have learned so much from many members here who have invited me into their homes, so please continue to do so. Young people, in return for this hospitality, lend your presence and lend your involvement in the lives of these homes. Care for and love their children. Don't just interact with them to have fun, but speak and act in accordance with the same gospel that they are being taught. And possibly the most valuable resource we can lend to others is one that we cannot have returned to us, and that's time. This may look like sacrificing an evening after a hard day of work to spend time with your children who have been waiting all day long for you to get home. Or this may look like giving up sleep to be with and care for a brother and sister who is lost in doubt but be willing to give up your precious time for someone to whom it would be more precious. Now, to continually lend like this, it is not easy. You will grow weary. You will feel exhausted and drained and like you have nothing left to give out of yourself, but persevere. Your expectation of a return is not of this earth, but it is of heaven. And for the weary, there is rest for those who are drained and exhausted and weary in that heavenly reward. And that brings us to the second ingredient of godly goodness, which is a heavenly expectation. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Now, the question that immediately pops into my mind when I read this is, well, what's the reward? We see that 
or we see Jesus use the same word earlier in Luke 6 when he tells those who suffer on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. We give and we suffer and we endure on this earth because our longings are not of this earth. And we can try to imagine how we will be rewarded in heaven or how exactly we earn these rewards. But as we heard from Jude in verse 21 this past Sunday, the reward Jesus is speaking of here is none other than himself. Understand that we are promised to stand face to face with the fully revealed glory of God, with the beginning and the end of all things, and with the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess his name as Lord. So love your enemies, do good, and lend because you have set your expectations on Christ, who took on the form of a servant, humbled himself to death upon a cross, and rose so that you could even do such things. Believer, are you setting your affections on earthly rewards or on Christ alone? Are you serving others to receive the praises of man or to bring glory to him who saved you from death? See also that our actions here on earth will have consequences in heaven. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that, to each, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So store up your treasures in heaven. Live and do good on this earth knowing that you will give a full account of your works to the holy judge, to the non-Christian See that there is nothing on this earth that can even begin to compare with the person of Jesus Christ. He is the creator of the entire universe, the exact imprint of the nature and the glory of God, and he is holy and set apart from us because of our sin. Yet he emptied himself upon the cross to take away the fullness of that sin so that we could receive him in his fullness. So please don't place your expectations in a world that cannot satisfy but look to Christ and receive him in faith. The last attribute of godly goodness that we see here in Luke 6 is a perfect example. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. If we were left on our own to pursue this heavenly reward by doing good, we would surely fail. And even in Christ, we fail to do these things time and time again. But we have been given the Spirit so that we would progressively grow in goodness, that we would constantly be made more like Christ. Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of godly goodness for us. He, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. He knew he could never repay the work that was completed on the cross, but he went there willingly because of the eternal expectation set before him. So it is not by these works of goodness that we are saved, but it is by these works of goodness that we see the goodness of the one who has saved us. This assertion that we will be made sons of the Most High is not placing a condition on our sonship. Rather, it declares the ability of our own good works to reflect the even greater work of God. Just as human children grow up to look like their parents, we also, as children of God, grow up in the Spirit to look like our Heavenly Father. So look to the perfect example of goodness set by God. At the end of The Good Dinosaur, Arlo finds himself trapped and injured after Spot is taken away by predators. As he lays unconscious, he sees a vision of his father who had given up his life to save him. 
And it is in this vision that Arlo has newfound strength to go and risk his life to save Spot. We, though, have an even greater motivator than the example of Arlo's father. We don't just have a heavenly father who would give up his own life for the son whom he loved, but we have a heavenly father that would give up the life of the son whom he loved for us who hated and rebelled against him. So don't look to your own ability and goodness as you follow the commands of Christ. Love your enemies and do good and lend, looking first to the God who loved you as his enemy by reconciling you to himself, who has given you every good thing in Christ Jesus, and who lent his only son to save you as a sinner who has nothing to return but filthy rags. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, you are kind and merciful, and you reign in perfect power and authority over all things. Lord, we thank you that even while we have failed to love one another and have set our minds on what we have here on this earth, you have not withheld your mercy from us, but you have freely offered up your son for us. Lord, let us hold fast to the love you displayed on the cross and let us look towards Christ's perfect example of goodness as we walk in obedience to your commands. May your name continue to be glorified. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.